I wanted to go back. wasn't really happy uh, with how quickly we dealt with justification and righteousness last week. And it's such a, I don't know that there's a better picture of the gospel than this right here. And there's so many things at play that if you can just spend time nailing this down, anytime you find yourself in a different church or having a conversation at work, and you get into a gospel conversation, if you've got this down, I don't know of a better foundation that you can have to have those kind of conversations and not get tripped up. Because of everybody that's tripped up, this is where they're tripped up. There's something about justification and righteousness they, they don't understand. And so I want to go back tonight, before we get into faith, and we might get into faith some just a little bit, but if we don't, that's just fine. But I am going to let you kind of sort things. I'm going to ask you questions, but I'm going to give you time enough for you to sort them out in your own minds. And I'll give you the scriptures to read so that they can begin to cement in your own mind. Because you know, it does you no good for me to tell you a bunch of things and you just try to memorize all those things. I'd rather you be able to go to the text and read it and understand it, figure it out yourself. That way you've got it. It does no good to just kind of memorize things. But one of the things that's unfortunate in English that's really helpful in Greek is this is the same word in the Greek. It's got the same root. And so you're dealing with the same thing. Now, if you, if you turn these words into right, which you can, and just, that helps because, you know, those are synonyms. If you look those up in the dictionary, if you're doing what's right, you're being just. If you're not being just, then you're, you're not doing what's right. Because justice is doing what's right, okay? So that kind of helps us in the English, but it's super helpful uh, in the Greek that these words are, well, poor Greek, but anyway, DK, it's the same root word. And from that one word, those two words come out in the English, okay? Now, where everybody that gets, I've tripped, the, I'm erased that, it's really bothering some of you. Uh, so here's the problem, right? Because man knows that there's a right and a wrong. You don't, you don't have to argue that with anybody. Uh, they may tell you that it's relative, but it's not. Everybody knows right and wrong, right? So when we bring in what is just and right to man in dealing with just man, you do realize there's not a person alive who would tell you that they're not just or right. I mean you're talking about one in a million people that are so messed up in the head they don't really care and they enjoy doing evil. But if you just ask the regular guy at work, do you think you're, you're just? Do you think you're right? And they're going to say, well, yeah, like almost always. I mean, I might trip up every now and then, but as a basis, as far as me being a human being, I do what's right like all the time. But the problem is, this word in relationship to man doesn't matter because it's not, we're not dealing in the realm of man because when you bring these two ideas up into God, so let's take righteousness and justice and bring it up here. Okay, what's happened to those two words? What's happened to that, that one word, two words in the English? We're on a completely entirely different level. Because when you begin to call God into question, is God just without question? 
Never has he not been. Is God right? Never has he not been. And so we usually use a different word in English. What's the, I, so if you take righteousness and justice, what's a word that we describe God that we don't ever describe man? Starts with an H. Holy, right? But you do realize holy is communicating the fact that God is always righteous and he's always just, right? So here's, here's where the breakdown comes by. Whose righteousness are we measured by in order that we might have eternal life? Jesus's or God's, but man doesn't think that way. They refuse to see themselves as unjust. They refuse to see themselves as unrighteous. They feel like they meet some sort of righteous standard and they have no idea that the standards up here has nothing to do with being down here. Because if we start comparing ourselves one to another, we're all good people. Nobody in here is not a good person. And so if we're going to say righteousness from this lower level of mankind, we all meet that righteous standard, but that's not the standard that we're measured by in order to have eternal life. The standard we're measured by is up here. And nobody can get that. That's, how, that's why the gospel is so good, but that's also the reason that nobody really understands the gospel unless they've been born again because they're down here measuring themselves on this level, and it has nothing to do with this level at all. Righteousness, we say, if, you understand, if you've been born again, you understand the Word of God, you understand that these two words can only apply to Him and Him alone, and therefore we don't have this, and we're measured by this, and so we must receive this. Does that make sense? Turn to Romans chapter 10. I think it's the first three verses. I'll give you all time to get there. Romans chapter 10. Nathan, will you read the first three verses for me? For me, please. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. So, they had no clue about this. They had no clue that the standard was up here. And so what they went about the business of doing is establishing their own righteousness. And you do realize everybody does that. I mean, like a hundred percent try to establish their own righteousness in order that God might receive them. And that's why everybody thinks they're going to heaven. They cannot comprehend that God alone is the standard, and they cannot comprehend that they fall below the standard that God has. Because they really feel like that I should, they really feel like God's down here. And they really feel like the standard is the same. And so God is just like a man, and therefore he's going to accept man because we're all good people, right? That's why it's so important for you to understand that the righteous requirements of God is not a human righteousness because that's not possible. So let me ask you this. If this is required, how in the world 
are we going to meet the requirements? We, we, yeah, it's going to have to be given to us. Because once it's violated, it's violated. Once you commit adultery in a marriage, you can't go back and clean that up. It's there forever. Okay? Once you violate the law of God, you can't go back and clean that up. It's ruined. It's just there. And so the only way to meet this is that it be given to us. And that's why the Reformers use this word, which I think is a really good word, that it was an alien righteousness because it was foreign to us. And see, this quickly separates you from Catholicism because Catholicism says that God gives you a righteousness and then in keeping that righteousness by doing good, then you're saved. That's not alien. And that's not what happens. God gives us His righteousness and therefore we meet His standard. And that's the gospel. And that's one of the best pictures of the gospel that I know. But just like Nathan just read in Romans 10, seeking to establish their own righteousness, and that's what everybody wants to do. And so you may have that memorized in your mind, but you really be, need to be able to understand that in your own heart. I, I, I cannot even begin to meet this standard. I, I cannot even begin to comprehend that standard. And so there's, there's nothing that I can do. And so you need to get over this idea of, you know, if I have a good day and I do what's right, I'm in God's favor. And if I have a bad day and I do what's wrong, I'm under God's judgment. Your, your thinking is way off. You're, you're never here. You're never here. And therefore, God has to give you that through the work of Christ. Does that make sense? Is there any questions about that? That is like the fundamental truth of the gospel. All right, so let's walk through these four things. Turn to Romans 3.10. And so when we're thinking about justification and we're thinking about righteousness, there's really four things that you must grasp, okay? And the first idea is found beginning in Romans 3.10, and you can read through, what is it? 3.13 or something like that. Yeah, down through 3.13 if you want, or really 9 and 10 will do it. You read that yourself, and then let me ask you this question. Why is it so necessary that we have this need for righteousness? Well, just sit there and marinate in a minute, in it a minute. I just want everybody to be able to read the text and understand that. Why do you need it? We don't have it. You just don't have it. I mean, it, literally. Guy walks in with a gun. He's going to shoot you unless you got a million dollars in cash that you can pay him right now. You don't have it. You simply don't have it. And you cannot 
muster it up. If I said, okay, I'll give you 24 hours, come back, you better have it. You're still not going to have it. You just, you're just not going to have it. And the righteousness of God is much more grander than that, right? So you just need to understand what God requires of me. I do not have, I cannot get, I cannot build it, I cannot make it, I cannot borrow it. It is simply alien to me, right? It might as well be, go grow a third head on your body. It's just not possible, okay? Now, in the same respect, read 3.17 and 3.21 and 22 and see if you can understand that it is all of God. There's a repeated phrase in there that's super helpful in 3.17, 3.21, 3.22. But I want you to read all three of those and I want you to see it for yourself. All right, what's the key phrase in 317, 21, 22? Of is in the middle. Righteousness of God. He keeps saying that. Righteousness of God. Righteousness of God. Righteousness of God. It's His. It's not yours. And that's why we're measured by this up here. And it has nothing to do with this down here. Because you're not him, you're not God, you don't possess righteousness. So in regard to what is required of you, the only person, if you will, that possesses what's required of you is God himself. Which is very interesting, right? Because it's our sin that violated God, but the very thing that you need can only come from God. Okay? can't get it somewhere else. If you become a monk or a nun, live in a monastery for the rest of your days and pray 12 hours a day, right, and fast, it doesn't matter. It's not going to happen for you, okay, because it is of God. It belongs to God. Now, read 321 and 322, and notice the relationship between these two words and faith. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known or manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament gave testimony to it as well. The righteousness of God through faith in, specifically, Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, here's this word again, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Meaning, the only way you get up here and possess this is simply through trusting God. We're back to the boat analogy. 
the only way you were going to survive the flood last week if you got on Chris's boat. And so faith is super significant, but then again, it's simply just trusting in what God says. So God says through the gospel that you and I are made righteous. We're made holy because we receive the righteousness of Christ. And it can't be, it can't be any work on your part because if you can work at it, then God is down here and you can achieve righteousness. That's why it's so dangerous for us to say something if you do this or if you do that, you will be saved. That's super weird, right? You cannot turn faith into a work. You can't say, well, I'm not Catholic where they've got these works. I'm a Baptist where I have one work, and that's to believe. No, don't think of it that way. That's congratulating yourself and your decision to get on Chris's boat. We said last week you'd never do that. You simply get off the boat and you'd hug Chris and say, thank you for building this boat and coming and getting me. Because all the glory would go to him, right? And so faith is not a work. We didn't take a hundred works and reduce them down to one. Faith is simply trusting that God will provide the righteousness that we need in order to be saved. And he's done that through Jesus Christ. But you can't completely dismiss works because now turn over to Romans 6, 13 through 18 and notice the relationship between justification, righteousness, and works. I'll give you all a minute to read it and then I'll read it behind you. Do not go on, Romans 6.13, presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Don't go on doing it because you used to do that. But rather, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law but under grace, because you've been saved. What then shall we sin, because we are not under law but under grace? Paul basically says, don't be foolish, may it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one you obey? You either present yourself to sin, which results in death, or obedience, which results in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you once were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you're committed, the teaching of the gospel. 
And having been freed from sin, you have now become slaves of righteousness. In other words, when God grants you this, not only are you declared or made holy in His sight, but He's given something to you that's of Himself. Remember, it's alien, but now the righteousness of God dwells in you, and if the righteousness of God dwells in you, it's living and active, and it's going to bear fruit. It's just simply going to do that. And you're free now. You don't have to go back and sin anymore. You've been set free. The spiritual chains have been broken. And you can literally do what's right. You can. And it may take you a great length of time to continue to grow in that and become stronger and stronger. But you've been set free. There's no more chains on you. You're not bound. You have the Son of God Himself that lives within you, and He's always going to produce fruit. You have the Holy Spirit that dwells within you. He's always going to produce fruit. He, he can't not produce fruit, right? There's all kinds of analogies that I can give you that. I don't think it's necessary. You understand that. But I want to show you something, how this relationship between these last two, you really need to grasp this and not get this confused. So go with me to Genesis 15. I just simply want to remind you of two stories in the Old Testament, okay? I'll read the first story since I can read it quickly. It's Genesis 15, 1 through 6, and then the other one I'll just show you. After these things, Genesis 15:1, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, I am a shield to you, your reward shall be very great. Abram said, Lord, what will you give me? I am childless, and the heir of my house is going to be this man, one of his slaves. Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir, one of his slaves. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one will come forth from your own body. He will be your heir. And he took Abram outside and said, Now look up to the heavens, count the stars if you can. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then Abram believed or trusted in the Lord, and God credited or reckoned it to him as righteousness. There's your word. In other words, Abraham understood that he was about 100 and his wife was 90 and her womb was dead and God said, you're going to have a son. And Abraham was like, it's just not possible as far as for me, but I trust in what you're saying it's going to happen. And God said, that trust is what I reckon with righteousness. So in other words, and we talked about this at great length on Sundays, but I can't produce a baby not possible, but God says, I'm going to give you one through my son, righteousness, if you will. And because we trust in the work of Christ, we have that life. We have that righteousness, okay? Now, turn with me to Genesis 22 because Abraham actually does something in Genesis 22 that is probably one of the greatest acts of faith that you'll find in the Bible. Well, not probably, it is. Uh, Genesis 22, verse 9. I'll read a few passages so you'll know what's going on. 
Then they came to the place, Abraham and his son Isaac, of which God had told him, Abraham built an altar there, he arranged the wood, he bound or tied up his son Isaac, he laid him on the altar on top of the wood, Abraham stretched out his hand, took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said, here I am, he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad, do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And then Abraham raised his eyes and looked. Behold, there was a ram caught in the thicket. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. So Genesis 15, Abraham trusts the Lord. God credits him with righteousness. He didn't do nothing. He didn't do anything. He couldn't do anything. Get over to Genesis 22, and God had called him to do something, sacrifice his only son. Abraham marches up the mountain in complete obedient faith, going to sacrifice his son because he's going to do what God says. Doesn't understand it, doesn't comprehend it. He just knows God said it. I'm going to go do it. That's crazy faith, but that's faith, right? Now, I want you to run with me to Romans 4. And I want you to see what Paul does, and then I want you to see what James does, and then I want you to understand it. Romans 4, verse 1, What then shall we say that Abraham our forefather according to the flesh is found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what is due but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So when Paul writes this, what chapter of Abraham's life does he have in mind? When he promised him a son or when he sacrificed his son? Which chapter? Chapter 15, chapter 15 right? For if Abraham, in verse 2, was justified by doing something, he had something to boast about. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but it's actually due him. But to one who does not work, but believes or trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness, the righteousness he needs. So in 15, Abraham did nothing. You're going to have a son. Okay, I'm 100, wife's 90, her womb is dead, but okay. God says, that's the kind of faith that credit with righteousness. You trust me. Okay? So when Paul's talking about our saving justification, our saving righteousness, he compares it to Genesis 15 because Abraham could do nothing. Right? But now I want you to turn to James 2 and watch what James does. Made it to first, second, third John, you've gone too far. Made it to first, second Peter, you've gone too far. It's all the way at the end, just after Hebrews, James 2. I want you to look at verse 14, and I'm going to read through verse 24.
All right. James 2, 14 through 24. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can such a faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. Someone will say, or someone may well say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Well, that's just great. The demons also believe and are afraid. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish man, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Did James just undo everything that I've said for weeks on end? Which chapter, by the way, was James looking at when he wrote that? 22, when he offered up his son. So what's Paul doing? What's James doing? And who do y'all want to answer that question? I'll let y'all let me pick on one person. I really want you to understand the relationship between these two things. Right? Paul's talking about justification. He says it comes by way of faith. I mean, we're back over here. I mean, you just can't get up here. Can't do it. So you've got to trust in God. But your trust in God is not just as deep as your mouth will go. Your trust in God is a reality of life. Okay? Faith in God looks an awful lot like works, but you're not saved by those works. You're saved by trusting God. But if you have faith in God, you're going to work in righteousness because you trust Him. Now, I would say to James, it's a bit unfair that you use Genesis 22 to make the comparison because that's like mind-blowing faith. But you see how faith works. God says, I do. And that's that living faith that's inside of you. It manifests itself that way. Are you saved by your works? No. But if you have saving faith, do you work? Yeah, it's impossible to say that you have something and then actually not have it, right? Back to the million dollars. I mean, the guy walks in. You're swearing up and down. I got a million dollars. I got a million dollars. I got a million dollars. Well, that's really easy to prove. Because you'll write him a check in just a minute. Or you'll go to the car and get it and be right back. It's super easy to prove. So we say, I have faith in God, I have faith in God, I have faith in God. Listen, you don't have to say it. It'll flesh itself out in your life. 
It'll be plainly evident. And that's the point that James is trying to make. You say that you have faith. I'll show you my faith by my works. I, ain't, I don't have to say it. So what Paul's doing and what James is doing is two entirely different things. We, we say Abraham's the father of faith. Well, yeah, you better believe he is. Look at, Jan look at Genesis 22. That's faith. You don't have to look at 15. You can look at 15, and this is what we would do if we just had 15. Abraham believed that he'd have a son, and God reckoned him in righteousness. How do you know he believed? How do you know he didn't go home and talk to his wife, stick his hands in his pockets? God said we was going to have a son. You believe this, God? That's hilarious to me. I'm 100 years old, and we're supposed to make a baby. What kind of God? How do you know he had faith in God? Well, go read Genesis 22, and you'll know. Right? So we have to be careful. You're justified by trusting God alone, period. You're not going to do anything to impress God. But if you've trusted in God, you really don't have to tell us. I mean, we're going to know. Your life's going to look like you trust God, right? It's going to change how you live. But you're not saved by that. You're saved by this and that alone. If you're saved by that, well, you're claiming to be like God. That's super offensive. You're not. Okay? Does that make sense? I've spent a lot of work, and a lot of men in this church spend a lot of work. We really want you to get those down in your own mind and not memorize something. You really mean, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm, I'm totally good with that. Questions? Helpful comments that I'm missing. All right, turn to Hebrews 10. I'm just going to introduce this and we'll fly into it next week, Lord willing. So we're about to embark on this. And there are, there are so many passages. <laughs> there are hundreds of usages of this word, and we're not even going to come close to touching on all of them. But if you want to, and a lot of people do this. Cody, this will mess you up a little bit too because this messed me up a little bit. If you wanted a biblical definition of faith, you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and look at verse 1. And you can simply read, Now faith is... Ah, Scripture defines it for us, right? Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And you go, well, that is the only definition we need of faith, even though there's literally hundreds of usages of multiple words in the Old Testament and New Testament. But if you'll look down in verse, chapter 10, verse 32, and you read just a few passages here. Remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of suffering, 
partly by being made a public spectacle through reproach and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were treated that way. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. It has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Verse 39, We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the souls. Now faith is. So let me ask you this. What is the context of the definition of faith in Hebrews 11? I just read it to you. In, in the, what is going on in the last part of Hebrews 10? What did they lose in Hebrews 10, the last part of 10? Material possessions. Material possessions. So what's the context of the definition in Hebrews 11? Suffering. In other words, the writer of Hebrews says, let me define faith for the context of suffering. You and I aren't suffering. So I bring this up to say this. Faith I always try to compare it to a diamond because, you know, you look at a diamond and I don't know how many different angles. Actually, I counted it up one time I preached a sermon on that. There's so many different facets to faith. It is absolutely remarkable. Nathan spent six weeks on repentance. If I did it justice, we would spend months on faith if we examine all the words and all the Old Testament, New Testament terminology going on. And we're not going to do that. But we are going to try to arrive at a working definition over the next at least two weeks, okay? But look at all this stuff that you've got to be able to understand the difference. But also you've got to understand how these things work together. So you've got to understand the difference between those. You've also got to understand how those things work together. So there's a whole lot of work to do. But let me show you. Uh, how the knots work because knots are super helpful. All right, here's three. Well, two. Here's two passages, right? Jeremiah 5, 17. They will devour your harvest, your food. They will devour your sons, your daughters. They will devour your flocks, your herds. They will devour your vines, your fig trees. They will demolish with a sword your fortified cities in which you trust. So Jeremiah 5, what are they trusting in? What are they trusting in? Your strength in your cities. Proverbs 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. What's the negative? Your own understanding. In other words, y'all, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of knots. And if you're going to properly define faith, you've got to understand all the knots because faith, the opposite of faith, is trusting in your own understanding. Proverbs 28, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. What's the opposite of faith? Trusting in my heart. What does everybody on Sand Mountain run around and say? You just got to trust your heart. Ah, 
Well, if you want to do that, it's the opposite of faith, but you go do what you feel like you need to do. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Some trust in chariots and horses. Some trust in their own ability and their strength, but we trust in God. So the opposite of faith is not trusting in what you can physically or mentally accomplish. It's not that. See, there's a, a, there's a lot of things to work through, and we're going to do that. But anyway, just be praying that God would give us the ability to understand biblical faith over the weeks ahead. And I'll stop with that.